0: Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Bruce Daisley, the writer, tech insider, podcaster, and expert on all things related to how we work, joins us to discuss his most recent book, Fortitude, Unlocking the Secrets of Inner Strength. Our host for today's discussion is Sarah Ellis. Sarah is co-founder of Amazing If, an award-winning company with a mission to make careers better for everyone. She's also the co-host of the Squiggly Careers podcast, along with Helen Tupper, and the two have published books, including You Coach You. Here's Sarah with more.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. So welcome to this Intelligence Squared event with Bruce Daisley. I will give Bruce a proper introduction in a moment, but I've known Bruce for a couple of years and there's a few things that you can always feel guaranteed by whenever you spend time with Bruce. You'll come away a bit smarter, a bit wiser, and he will definitely make you smile, even though he's always more than prepared to disagree with me. So hopefully it will be a really fun conversation to be part of. And as well as me asking Bruce some questions and hopefully some tough questions along the way. And then we'll go over to the audience questions or feel free to keep them anonymous if you'd prefer. Ask some Bruce some hard questions. He likes he likes a hard question. A few things about Bruce, if you're coming across him for the first time today um, or perhaps you're new to his work. He's the author of now two Sunday Times best-selling books. His first is called The Joy of Work. And then we've got Fortitude that we're going to be talking about today. Previously, he was the European vice president of Twitter and he hosts a brilliant podcast called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, that I'd really recommend. um, Anyone who's interested just in work and culture of work, he has incredible guests and he brings his inquiring mind to those conversations. And he's also one of Evening Standard's a thousand most influential Londoners um, for four years. So he obviously just keeps being influential. And so tonight, we're going to be diving into his new book, Fortitude. So Bruce, shall we dive in and get started?
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Looking forward to it.
1: So at the very start of Fortitude, I think it's in the first chapter or so, there was a sentence that sort of really stopped me in my tracks and made me rethink resilience, which is one of the things I think Fortitude does so well. And you say, Never in the history of resilience has someone become more resilient by being told to be more resilient. And as soon as you sort of wrote that sentence, I thought, oh, yeah, that's we can't just be more resilient, especially in those moments of adversity and those tough times. And I thought that was a good starting point for our discussion today is let's sort of dive into what are some of the problems with resilience? Why does resilience perhaps hinder rather than help us? What, what gets in the way when we, when we kind of use resilience as our starting point?
2: Well, the funny thing is, it's like resilience is... It's just everywhere around us. And it's one of those things, you, you know, if you find yourself in a, in a circumstance, you know, pregnant women always report seeing pregnant women everywhere. As soon as you're <laughs> aware of the word resilience, you start spotting the, the use of it everywhere. I was listening to the radio a couple of weeks ago, and it was used about three times in a row, two days running on Radio 4 Today programme. It's like really interesting that it just permeates the, the discourse, because I think it's just such an easy thing to demand of someone, you know, deal with it, be more resilient suck it up be stronger because it kind of enables you to feel like i gave them some advice i sent them on their way and it's not my problem anymore now i know that in the majority of instances it's got a more charitable use to that you know we we're saying it to try and say to A teenager, look, you know, you're going to need to toughen up or saying it to a friend, you know, you need to be more resilient. We're not deliberately trying to say something that's unhelpful, but it's been very heavily misappropriated. I found myself um I started writing this right sort of at the start of COVID. And then you weren't allowed to see people for five or six months. And so I'm five (laughs) months into writing a book on resilience. And then when you're allowed to see people, I met up with people, eat out to Dine Out, or Dine Actually at Health Out. And uh, I met <laughs> up with people saying, oh, I'm writing a, what have you been doing during COVID? I've written a book on resilience. And they're like, oh, okay, I'm really fed up of hearing about resilience. Good, that's, that's helpful. And, uh, well, you know, I've got a f- friend who sort of says, you know, everyone here has been sent on resilience course and people roll their eyes when it's mentioned. And it was like, okay, well, this actually is pretty consistent with the angle I'm coming from. But a lot of people are getting very fed up of the R word, I think. And I, I wanted to unpick why actually in its essence something that should be Helpful, a helpful pointer for us. Why is it sort of being misappropriated and and losing all the energy from it?
1: And one of the things that... actually I don't think you necessarily dive into in that much detail in fortitude is is almost the difference between fortitude and resilience. So I wonder if we could just pause on that for a moment before we, we move on to some of the kind of chapter topics, because I always feel like, certainly through the work that I do, the words that we use matter. They frame our thinking. They give us references. They can really help us um, in a positive way, or they can actually they can they can be barriers. So, do you is the conclusion that you've come to that fortitude is just a better word for resilience? So, are they are they sort of more synonymous, or do you see them as being actually different things? Because you do in fortitude, you've you've really gone into the research. You've taken research from lots of different areas of, um, you know, whether it's psychology or sociology, you've not sort of of just stayed in a silo in one area. So I was just interested to see where you've got to with this relationship between resilience and fortitude. Do you want us to stop using the word resilience or is it just you want us to understand it better?
2: Uh, Not really, and in fact, I use it all the time, but it's more, (laughs) you know, if you have got a weariness about it, then giving yourself the opportunity to have a reset you know the thing is because it's been so heavily misappropriated you'll you'll still walk into a workplace and they'll have a poster up for a resilience workshop and i guess i just wanted to have something that was a, a mental reset from that something that was saying okay that's well established but i just want to maybe come at it a slightly different way and you know broadly it was an attempt to you know, I hate those books where you read it and it feels like the <laughs> title is capitalized all the way through. Grit really springs to mind if if you've ever read Angela Duckworth's Grit. It feels like not only is she establishing this idea, um, but she's also trying to trademark it. So it's almost like <laughs> needs the little TM after every time she's using it. And I was really conscious not to do that. So you know, um, while I much prefer this opportunity to think again about the way we're doing it. You know, for me, fortitude and resilience are synonyms. But I think it's a, a way to try and say, OK, we're actually thinking about it in this slightly different way. And so um, and so fortitude is is the refresh on that, really.
1: Yeah, And I think one of my observations is you definitely resist the temptation. And it is a temptation, I think, for anyone who writes a book to come up with a formula for fortitude. And I think you even have um, a great quote in the book where you talk about, you know, well, something that is is complex. You, you can't simplify it and just go, well, this is the answer. You just do this one thing and it's it's a silver bullet. I do think you explore it from lots of angles. And one of the things that's really interesting, and I think you've maybe even got a chapter title um, that, that talks to this, is that phrase that we're all really familiar with, which is, um, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And we sort of all feel that and this sense of, well, if I've been through lots of adversity or I've been through lots of hardship, I found things really difficult does that increase my resilience? Does that, is is that actually useful for me for later in life? Is that why some people go on to be super performers in whatever their field might be? Um, And you definitely challenge that that notion. So I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about this idea of what doesn't kill us perhaps very nearly kills us, I think.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, there's, there's a really critical part to this, that firstly, there's so much survivor's bias in the in the stories that were told. And so we see these stories of people who've achieved remarkable things. And to some extent, we're sort of given an explanation that we, we might be, we might take to believe is, is the thing that explains what's gone on. So, you know, specifically, let's look at a story that was in the news three or four weeks ago. Mo Farah, the, one of the greatest track and field uh, athletes that the UK has ever produced, two gold medals from two successive games. And actually now, in context of the the new explanation he's given for his childhood, we might say, well, wow, you know, what didn't kill him made him stronger? He was inspired to go on and achieve this greatness through um, through this childhood Adversity you know he was victim of human trafficking, and actually i was I wanted to really get to the bottom of that because there 's some intriguing evidence that might serve to misdirect you along the way u k sport did this now really intriguing piece of research that didn 't get a lot of publicity at all. You know I searched for newspaper articles about this when it first came out, and there was one or two small pieces pulled out, but it wasn 't well covered u k sport did this piece of work. When they were being gifted some more money from government, I think there was a recognition that actually sporting achievement from 2012 onwards seemed to correlate with national pride and a and sense of shared identity. So more money was going into it. And UK Sport said, we don't want to go this alone. We want to try and understand where we should put our money. Because sometimes they were investing in athletes and they were going to the games and getting a gold and they were going investing in other athletes and they would disappear without a trace. It was like, okay, well our job is backing winners, so how do we find the winners? And this piece of research is is fascinating to look at. It's about 120 pages long. And they look into the um, the biographies of retired British athletes. Uh, and they say these people, by their accomplishments, are household names. So they anonymize them. They don't tell you who they are. But there's a remarkable story that runs through it. All of the these household names, these super elite athletes, all of them, 100% of them, reported a significant moment of childhood trauma, a significant moment of um, a negative experience, normally correlated around the same time with a significant moment of sporting success. Now, that's really intriguing. To contrast them with those who went to the games and didn't get goals, only a quarter of them had something comparable. So it's this really interesting story because, okay, now we look at the Mo, Mo Farah story and we don't look at it as this redemption sequence that's, that's one off. We look at it and we go, oh, there's something intriguing going on here. This there's, there's something fascinating that something has, has somehow played a part. and so. Firstly, I wanted to go in and disabuse any mistaken idea that we might have. I posted a TikTok and someone replied, about Mo historians, and someone replied, oh, it makes me sad that I didn't have any childhood trauma. And so this is an attempt, what I do in that chapter is an attempt to go into actually firstly, how well we now understand the impact of childhood trauma and and how it has hugely harmful impact on, on human lives. So, you know, there's something called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Index. And this is uh, a really simple, rudimentary way to appraise people's experience. It was discovered by a couple of American physicians. They put it together because they were starting to recognize really interesting patterns. Um, brief, Very briefly, a, a guy called Vincent Felitti, Dr. Vincent Felitti, he discovered that when he was running a weight loss clinic, people who were generally 200, 300 pounds, and he was trying to get them down to a normal weight. He stumbled upon the discovery that 55% of his patients who were extremely obese had suffered childhood sexual abuse. He was astonished. He didn't believe that that had any frequency to it at all. he thought it was a freak aberration. And he, he discovered that actually it was the thing that characterized a lot of his patients, astonishing and, and alarming the two physicians took that work and they, they built this index, this Adverse Childhood Experience Index. And it's a really helpful device because it enables you to go through 10 things. And some of them are very different in terms of their, their gravity. Some of them, One of them is, did your parents divorce before you're 18? Another one is, were you sexually abused? I mean, like they, they feel polar opposites. But the interesting thing is that parental abuse very strongly correlates with childhood obesity. Um, were you humiliated? routinely as a kid, very strongly correlates with people who spend time in jail and, and have sort of histories of violent behavior. And what you find is that because you don't have to tell someone which ones you ticked yes or no to, you're given a score. And this ACE score is astonishing as a vehicle for telling us... Life outcomes, if left unchecked, life outcomes. So, if you've got an A score of four, you're 33 times more likely to have educational problems at school. If you've got an A score of four, and I've got an A score of four, you're uh, twice as likely to suffer from heart disease, you're twice as likely to uh, suffer from cancer. Um, about 60 to 70% of all addiction issues are explained by A scores. If you have an A score of seven, the U.S. prison population, on average, have an A score of six. If if you have an A score of seven, um, you are your life expectancy is 20 years lower. So look, we've got these two really interesting things juxtaposed. Firstly, these elite athletes seem to have reached a level of transcendence from uh, th- their negative experiences, and secondly, in aggregate, that is not the way that. Elite, yeah. uh, the, the abuse and and negative experience play out, and so it's this really interesting juxtaposition that I was I wanted to get to the heart of what were the things going on here, and how can we understand the the mechanisms at play in something as as hard to understand as the human brain.
1: And as you started to dive into that I think one of the things that surprised me the most um, and got a lot of underlining as I was uh, reading Fortitude is you start to make the distinction and talk about the difference between um, the way you describe it is meanness versus weeness when it comes to resilience and fortitude because I think our assumption and our inclination and even in what you've just described is This is this is a solo endeavor. How can I be more resilient, um, or I'm not resilient enough if I'm beating myself up, um, or if we're having a difficult time, we're thinking I need to be more resilient. Whereas actually you talk about this idea of we can collectively be resilient and how powerful that is. Um, and you uh, reference a social scientist, um, Emile Durkheim, who talks about this idea of collective effervescence, which I thought just was just a, a lovely phrase. So I wonder if you could just talk about this idea of, again, because I feel like one of the things the book does so well is... Um, debunk some very commonly held myths or sayings that we have about resilience that probably do get in our way. And I feel like this is alongside this idea of, oh, you know, I need to have gone through lots of adversity to be very successful, which clearly isn't true. Like you say, there are some outlier examples and we know them because they're very well known and and well publicised. There's also this sense of, oh, well, this is a this is an individual thing. And so what examples did you come across or what evidence did you find as part of writing Fortitude that this could be something that we could think about together, maybe as a team or as a community in terms of where you live? Um, or perhaps as a community of people who've got a similar similar interest or you want to support people who perhaps need support, especially with where we are at the moment in the world. Uh, so what, what's the difference between those two? And, and are there any examples or stories that might bring those things to life?
2: Yeah, well, look, you know, if I was going to summarize the the one, one thing from the, the work that I did was that, you know, if I wanted to be reductive and say, you know, what is the lesson? Mm-hmm. The lesson is that resilience is the strength we draw from each other. Resilience is a collective strength. Resilience is, is the the way that... Together, all of us are stronger than any of us. And I think, you know, that's my fundamental finding on it. So, you know, the one thing that is is everywhere ubiquitous in the world of work right now is these resilience webinars. And I think probably the question that I would pose to any manager... Uh, commissioning a resilience workshop is absolutely, you know, understanding that you've got a need for it is really critical. But one of the things you might ask yourself is not how do I demand resilience from my workforce, but how can you enable it in them? How can you make them feel supported and um, and really sort of part of a, a a movement? How can we all feel like we're all in it together? And you see really fascinating examples of that. These are an incredible... American social scientist who passed away a couple of years ago called Enrico Quarantelli and he was fascinating because his job really was to to Travel in the in the opposite lanes of traffic uh, when a natural disaster has taken place. So you know all the lanes of, of traffic are clogged with cars fleeing an earthquake, a some sort of 9-11, you know something that's bad that's happened. He's the lone car driving in the other direction. He wanted to go and see what was going on, and he describes really interesting things. When he was first doing the work, he was expecting that when you went into a natural disaster, you would see all these forlorn people dashing the hills really anxious he said he was he was so certain that that was what he was looking for he kept looking for it it's like i can't find this anywhere and then he started in the end he got commissioned by the us government to do his work because he was just really providing some counterintuitive uh, evidence. And what one thing they found was that almost without exception, there was something that happened in the midst of natural disasters. Images from Pakistan right now really bring this to mind that, you know, irrespective of whether you are a businessman that owns this luxury mansion, or you're someone who lives in this sort of rather more humble uh, dwelling down the road, you, you're all in this moment where your identities have been, your old identities have been reset. You know, you really vividly see this in the first hand accounts of people from things like September the 11th, where people would say these lovely stories where people say, um, we all walked down the length of Manhattan, uh, bars just started, you know, it started opening. And, you know, I, I bought this stranger a beer and we stood contemplating the world. And it's really interesting moments where people sort of forget who we used to be, and now imagine who we are. And all of that is in service, I think, to this idea that fortitude strength seems to come when we've got this sense that we're all in it together, that when we're all united by something that we share with each other. And I think for me, that's a number one, it's a really critical lesson. And secondly, it's it's got a very valuable application to the moment of work, of society that we're all in right now.
1: And actually just building on that in terms of kind of the nowness, um, one of the things that you talk about is that, Whenever we are faced universally, something I think we universally all have in common is whenever we have uncertainty, a lack of information, and a loss of control, it leads to stress inevitably, and I would imagine a reduction in resilience, or a potential, you know, potential reduction in resilience. Um, And I was thinking about where we all are in the world right now, and you know, if you sort of if you were doing a checklist, like. Do you feel some uncertainty about the future? You'd be thinking, yes. Lack of information, do you really feel like you know if things feel transparent? Are there no knowns all there? You're probably like, no. Do I feel like really in control of my energy prices? No. You know, they're, they're, that list kind of goes on, whether you look at it from in terms of your world, world or the world, all of those three things are probably present for most people to at least some extent. And so I just wondered whether, given that's probably true for most people uh, listening or watching this right now, what are some of the things that you think might be useful for people to do either t- together or individually? Because I think there were still some examples in Fortitude about Yes, there's um, a real sense of togetherness here that can be very useful, but there are also some things you can do individually. So it's not a kind of um, an either or, it's more more of an and was certainly the sense that I got. So if that is how people are feeling, um, you know, pretty bruised after the past couple of years, and then it feels pretty relentless right now, that's the kind of the word that I'm hearing from, you know, my sisters on our WhatsApp group or my friends, you know, it just feels like kind of wave after wave. What can we do to sort of help each other and to help ourselves?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, you know, I think there's a critical part to this. And I mentioned before those workplaces that are commissioning resilience training. And probably one of the first things that is worth understanding is the importance of a sense of personal control. And our well-being is fundamental. It's one of the biggest predictors of how we're doing. You know, I guess if you put control at one end and helplessness at another, you know, the closer we feel to helpless, um, the the worse our overall sense of well-being, especially our mental well-being, and. I think this comes out really vividly if we think about the lived experience of a lot of employees, a lot of people in the workforce right now, like teammates, ourselves. If you open your calendar on a Monday morning and it's back-to-back meetings, or you open it on Sunday night, (laughs) if you want a glimpse at what horrors (laughs) uh, await you tomorrow morning, and you've got back-to-back meetings, you can sort of imagine it does produce this anxiety, this spiraling anxiety where people are like, oh my God, we're back in the relentless cycle again. We're back at it again. And, um, and I think that's what I've witnessed from a lot of people that, you know, I, I sort of every week I try to document a few things that are happening and uh, evolving in the workplace in, in a newsletter. And, and one of the things that you oft, I often observe is that I, I speak to people and they say, you know, I just feel completely overwhelmed and out of control. I, I feel like, you know, there's never enough moments in a day to get work done. Uh, or you know the horror of look, this is as bad as it's ever been, and now the boss is demanding we're in three days a week. You know every time I've been in the office, <laughs> I'm getting less done, not more done. I feel out out of. I feel like I've got no control over this, and it's a really big predictor. And and in fact, it's sort of it's this predictor that it seems fairly easy to to mediate. There was a piece of work published a couple of months ago that said that when you give workers a day with no meetings, um, their, their their sense of stress goes down, their sense of engagement with their job goes up. And, you know, that can be a really simple thing. It's not saying that they won't meet anyone that day, but it's just like there's no scheduled calendar meetings. They can feel free to arrange any of their meetings themselves. So it's like a really interesting thing. Just giving people a tiny bit more control, a tiny bit more autonomy over their lives seems to have a huge disproportionately strong effect, I think, on people feeling like they can cope.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. And we've experimented with that. So I can talk about that firsthand. So we have in Amazing If, our company, something called Freedom Fridays, where it doesn't have to be a Friday, but we call it Freedom Fridays because we remember it and it sort of has the alliteration that's quite useful. And on Freedom Fridays, exactly to your point, it's completely up to you if you want to meet somebody but the sort of the day is yours you sort of design that day um and it just feels like that day always feels different some people decide to do it on a tuesday i actually do do it on a friday and it just means that your sort of your sense of autonomy and control actually over the whole of the week feels different i think the sort of the halo effect of the sort of resilience and strength that you feel it's almost sort of from one intervention, the ripple of that goes across the whole of your week. Not just, you don't just sort of feel good that day and then not very good. The other three or four days, actually you feel kind of everything rises. You kind of feel better generally and anything I think you can do to experiment from a, certainly from a work perspective with what could we do differently and not feeling like you have to come up with all the answers. Certainly if you're watching this as a leader or a manager the best organisations certainly that we work with at the moment are very much asking people, what could this look like? How, how, what could we experiment with? Uh, what would be useful for you? And so involve people rather than feeling like you have to solve, solve for people, which again, I think increases people's control. So again, you get that extra benefit by, by including people in those conversations.
2: It sounds amazing, but how do you do it if someone chooses Tuesday and someone chooses Friday? Because surely they do need to meet each other. How'd you how you make that work?
1: I think what we found I mean, we're a small company, which right. I think is right. easier, I guess. When you're when I used to work for a very, very, very big companies, we did have um days where people sort of tried to do yeah. half half a day a week where, you know, it was sort of universal. So we're smaller. So I guess that works a bit yeah. easier. Um, and we've got people doing quite different sorts of jobs. Some of those are more reliant on meeting people than others and different types of meeting. There's sometimes there's quite a big difference between a 10 minute conversation and maybe a meeting with an external client. Uh, so at the moment, I mean, we're still very much in experimenting phase. We've probably been it. doing it for four months. So who knows? Who knows how it will work? It. But so far, it. the feedback has been has been good. So it's, it is quite interesting. Is there anything you've done differently, Bruce, before we go to questions from other people? Um, and please do keep those, um, those conversations coming. I can already see some of those questions. So I do want want to get to those. Um but, you know, you writing a book is a, you know, all it's a kind of all-inclusive process is a good way to think of it. You're sort of, you, you will have dived so deep into the world of research around resilience. You tell some great stories and give loads of examples and fortitude to really bring the ideas to life. Um, what has it made you think about your life and the way that you work? Have you changed anything? Have you done yeah. things differently as a result?
2: Yeah, the, the thing that's really... You know, if, if I've talked about sort of resilience is the strength we draw from other people, it's made me value and and actually evaluate my friendships and the groups I'm part of more than ever before. You know, I, I mentioned, I think I I might mention it to you or someone, but I, I I did an exercise, uh, vaguely, where I scribbled down like all of the friendships is in this book that in front of me just by coincidentally okay, of all the friendships and all the groups that I feel part of and, and in fact I'm in the midst of arranging a work reunion with another group because it's just made me feel like oh wow you know that connection is such a valuable part of us feeling human and supportive and like we're not doing this alone um, and so it made me firstly evaluate them and and then secondly b- by the very act of evaluating what friendships you've got and and what groups you're part of it's made me think okay well what efforts are you making to get those into a better place than they were six months ago uh, you know and and I, I don't want to say that that's the exclusion of new friends one of my very best friends is someone I've only known really for, for three or four or five years um so you know but it's just made me really value connection with other people in a way that I was casually aware of before mm-hmm. but I'm very vividly aware of now and it's just um it's fundamentally it's made me change that
1: and that's perhaps unexpected you know that's perhaps not what you would have thought at the start start of the process yeah um so let's go to some of these questions because I've had a quick um read through and they are brilliant questions and also really quite quite a range of questions so i think we'll go in different places so the first conversation uh, uh, question comes from steve um and he says we are told that children who show grit in early life tend to be more successful later on is there any correlation between the way children deal with adversity and how they handle it later on in life
2: you know, um, Grit very much sits as part of what I labeled the resilience orthodoxy. And so at great length, I went through what is claimed about Grit and the methodology that they do. Maybe too long, but I just want to go and get to the heart of it. And, um, and you know, I'd really take issue with most of what's there. There's, firstly, there's some significant issues in whether what is claimed about it is actually true. Um, But, you know, even to the extent that some of the research, I don't think, proves what the researcher claims. Um, Secondly, I think, you know, even the the author of it, Angela Duckworth, she she worked on the original paper with a guy called Martin Seligman. But even she would claim that um, the thing that she values in her work is the ability to stick at things irrespective of other interests and to the exclusion of everything else. And I'm not convinced that that's necessarily a good recipe for success in the year 2022 or 2020 or 2032 or 2042. Um, You know, we need to be adaptable. We need to be flexible. We, you know, there's some really intriguing evidence about when people persist at things even when they're not necessarily good at them, it can have a pretty harmful effect on their well-being. So I think the the lesson has to be a bit more adaptable than that. It has to be that you know give something a good go, persist at it, try your best. But if it's not for you, then learning something that you are good at is is an important um, trade-off, I think. So, you know, I, I spend a long time going through grit. Grit is probably right in the bullseye of, of the things that I was most intrigued about, because you hear it everywhere. In the US, it was described as like, in schools, it was described as like a semi-religion. Mm-hmm. And so there's been so much endorsement of it. And, you know, I went a great length through the, the papers that have sort of reviewed it and appraised it really.
0: Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com dot com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium dot dot com or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support.
1: Okay, so that's interesting on schools. So let's skip to a question on schools. And I promise I will come back to some of the others because I think this is connected. Um, Becky in Beverly is asking, do you think that schools um, should create a more cooperative style of learning to prepare young people for the world of work and life? So you talked about that we-ness. So is this something that we could imagine, you know, creating an opportunity to learn in schools? Can, Can you see how some of the work that you've done could apply in that kind of setting?
2: Yeah, most definitely. If you think about, it, you know, I, I think the reason why so many Gen Zs are arriving in the workforce and thinking work is mad, <laughs> work is just dysfunctional. Yeah. Why do I have to ne- keep doing this job that I'm not very well paid for for ten years before I reach that level, <laughs> and twenty years before I reach that level? Just why, why does it work like this? I think the reason why they're arriving in the the, the workforce, thinking about those things, is that we're just setting people up so inexpertly for the, the world we're going into. Actually, you know, maybe to some extent the, their questioning mind is, is more adapted to the, the moment we're in than the the people who are incumbents in the wor- workforce. But I think, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons to learn. Not least, there's some fascinating evidence about what teenagers can be uh, helped with. You know, I, I was very aware that when you talk about resilience and when you talk about the notion of people being stronger, that there's a constant suggestion that young people are less resilient than they used to be. So I spend a lot of time going through that. And look, you know, it's worth saying that I think I'm even handed in the, the way I look at some of this. Uh, probably the world's leading expert on teenage work, mental well-being is a woman called Jean Twenge. And Jean Twenge from University of San Diego looks at teenagers trying to understand are they less able to cope than the cohort of of people maybe 10 15 20 years ago and you know what she she strongly believes that that mobile phones have had an impact but one of the things that she, i i think she was surprised by was some evidence that came at the start of the pandemic and the the pandemic really sort of gave us you know, so many different periods of research. Um, so the the bit I'm asking you to think about and to try and reimagine is that first period. You were watching the daily briefings. Chris Whitty was like the uh, the most important man in the UK. It was it was that first couple of months. Someone was being sent out to forage for toilet rolls. Someone was sort of uh, <laughs> gathering pasta shells. And and you, you were gathering together at the dinner table every night and having a, a meal in maybe the only way, in a way that you've never encountered your flatmates, your your family before. Um, and that period she researched and she found that teenagers who were having an evening meal each night were significantly less depressed and significantly more resilient than those who didn't. Resilience is togetherness. Fortitude is a feeling of connection. And actually schools should be teaching that. There's some valuable lesson I think for schools to understand that when we feel it's why so many of us have got a fond memory of school because that moment of deep connectedness, that sort of real visceral connection with people around you, is quite an, an enduring experience. A lot of us walk away from it going, Those were the best years of my life. Um, and I think you know, it's a really important lesson when we're thinking about what school can teach.
1: I certainly think if my five year old was taught that at school, I would mm. feel pretty reassured about that about his future Um, and like you say i think when i think about some of my happiest memories of school it's never me as an individual my happiest memory is my uh you know my netball team winning the under 18 netball championship and you know coming from the school that i came from and that being very unexpected uh you know that's a like you say that's a real visceral memory i don't particularly remember anything sort of by myself or sitting and doing particularly you know, well, or like, Oh, I I wrote a really good essay in English. Hopefully I wrote some good essays in English along the way, but that's not, that's not what you remember. Um, a great question coming here from Julia. And I suspect Julia is not the only one with this question. Um, she says the boss of the company I work for is the kind of person who would be very resistant to your views. What can I do to help our team have more fortitude, given that the CEO is unlikely to come on board? So what might that look like?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we're all, I think we're presented with this everywhere. I wrote a book previously, which was about workplace culture. And, and really the, the, the inspiration for that was that anyone can change the culture. It's the, the boss doesn't own the culture. And, you know, I was particularly inspired by that, by going into one organization where the receptionist had changed the culture. And she'd said, "You know, we've got a terrible culture here, and you know, she'd taken it upon herself because no one had res- responded to that. So she'd gone out. She'd bought some bags of Doritos. She bought some, you know, multi packs of Quavers. She laid them all out on a paper plate, on paper plates, and she invited people to Crisp Thursday. You know, this week we're going to be trying great, these new. Great, <laughs> I know, this week we're going to be trying Chinese." Flavored snacks. The this week we're going to be mm-hmm. trying. You know, she introduced themes to it, and it became very quickly a part of a ritual of part of the organisation. People would say, "Are you going to crisp Thursday? We don't need a meeting. I'll meet you at crisp Thursday." Really interesting. Um, the sort of uh, playing out of of those interactions. Anyway, so the the thing I've always been struck by. I used to have a boss, and we had this confounding problem that where we had. Um, Loads of people quitting with no job to go to. And when we did exit interviews with people, they said, it's because the culture is relentless. I have meetings in the evening. I have meetings all day. I have non-stop emails all weekend. And so we said, OK, so how about we were around the table, sort of in the leadership. Team. How about we try and stop weekend emails? And it's like, OK, well, yeah. it was like, well, because the, the people are telling us that's one of the biggest things. OK, we'll give it a go. We'll give it a go for three months. Then And so it was like trying to present the evidence to them to say, OK, if we've got the evidence, give it a go. And generally, I think evidence wins over opinion. And so that's why, you know, trying to say to someone, I think, you know, this is an interesting discussion, getting an article and saying, oh, you know, I'd love to get people's views on this article. I'd love to get people's views on this you know, um, by all means, sort of get in touch with me, and I'll give whoever this is, a, and it's maybe something that I'll I'll find from sort of a journal somewhere or an article somewhere that might be like for the next team offsite, or you know, to send anonymously to your boss. Um, uh, you know, package it up and say, look, you know, saw this and thought of you. But yeah, you know, it's um, in fact, when I did my old book, I did this little series. Um, the book very much without intention. I set up this little helpline called the Bad Boss Helpline.
1: I remember and you like, doing that. Yeah.
2: And, uh, and it was like, if you've got a bad boss, I will anonymously send a copy of the bad of, of the joy of work to your boss. <laughs> um, so and, and tell them that someone saw this and thought of you. And uh, I had quite a few fun things come through on that. (laughs) Um,
1: And um, as well as doing that, Julia, if it's helpful sometimes with the work that we do, so we do a lot of work on what's called squiggly careers. So, you know, careers where you develop in different directions and we're learning and adapting um, very much sits alongside the work that Bruce does. Uh, Sometimes, again, we get CEOs who are not on board with that or, you know, maybe It feels unfamiliar. You know, they're used to the ladder-like world and the hierarchy. We also often find that, you know, external people who are credible or sources that don't come from within the organization seem to have an overwhelmingly big impact. So, for example, when we write a Harvard Business Review article on reimagining retention, It's a very different thing for a CEO to read versus perhaps a HR director talking about that to a CEO who perhaps just feels like that person is, oh, that's the thing that they believe in. They're just trying to kind of put forward their own views. So sometimes finding external experts like Bruce and those sort of sources I I often try and figure out, well, what feels credible in that person's mind? It might be just as credible as exactly what you're saying, but it can just, you know, borrow some brilliance from somewhere else that might make the point, a different industry, a different person, um, in case that's helpful. Right, we've got, let's do a deep and meaningful question, Bruce, and then I've got another practical one for you. Uh, so Stella asks Are there any ancient thinkers who have inspired your own thinking? Um, for example, Chinese, Greek, or Roman thinkers?
2: Um, you're presuming far too <laughs> high a brow for me, really. I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> I did go through uh, specifically when I was thinking about um, the suspicion of the young, you know, saying that the younger generation are less resilient than us before. I did go through these mentions of uh, older uh, of younger people being criticized in ancient Egypt these these criticisms of younger people in the bible criticisms going back to sort of 14th, 15th century um, so those things are recurrent actually and in fact even if you ask psychologists so if you ask trained people who are expert on this and you say to them do you think young people are better today at the marshmallow challenge than they were 20 years ago <laughs> the marshmallow challenge is where you offer a, a marshmallow to a preschooler and you say to them, you can have one marshmallow now or two in five minutes time. Uh, and, you know, and the question, it's, it's much debated whether this is predictive of anything, let alone adult success. But if you ask psychologists, do you think kids today are better than they were 30 years ago? And they say, no, I bet they're significantly worse. Kids have been getting better at this challenge for the last 30 years. So um, so we just <laughs> even people who are trained in it underestimate people. But no, I, I have no wisdom that um that originates really my work sort of focuses on the research for the last 20 years really
1: (laughs) um and just one other one we're in that kind of um kind of deep thoughtful questions because i don't want to um ignore it before we move on to another one uh jamal is asking religious people tend to live longer and happier lives do you see any parallels between your collaborative approach to success and that of religious groups?
2: Absolutely. There's a really intriguing thing. Um, and look, you know, I don't mean to um, uh, question the, the, the value of the religion in itself. But one of the things that you ge- generally get from religious people is there's a very strong sense of we of connectedness. So, you know, one mm. of the things you might say that religious people live longer are you looking at the benefit of being part of a group or are you looking at the protective glow of religion? And there's a really interesting phrase used um, by a the, the former chief rabbi. So, you know, um, f- uh, uh, some someone in Judaism, and he said um, really interestingly when he's reflect he was reflecting. He's passed away now, but when he was reflecting on the history of the um, the, the Jewish people, he said that there's something that was really important in terms of their identity being passed along because they often. For a long time, obviously, they didn't have a country, and their identity was passed along by these shared moments of joy. Simha is the word he used for it. These moments of joy were really important for transferring a sense of who they were, who they, what they stood for, and so it's just a really interesting reminder. I'll give you another um, another that's a, a secular uh, application away from religion. So quite often, you know, we'll hear of oh, Granny's joined a exercise class, and you know, it's really good for her. Whatever. A group of researchers looked into trying to unpick exactly what was going on when granny and granddad joined the aerobics class and so they, they created another class you know let's imagine it it's in the next room but this room um was instructed that you could do a group activity but you uh, it couldn't be a physical activity so they actually set up a, a series of these groups, and this one was a reminiscence class. So the group would gather exactly the same time as the aerobics class on a Thursday morning, and they measured the health and well-being of both groups, and they showed identical improvements. You might be, you might beg the question: Is the fact that you're in an aerobics group the protective thing rather than the aerobics itself? And probably the best way to summarise summarise it is that the a really famous American social scientist guy called Robert Putnam. He said. If you're not a member of a group, but you smoke 15 cigarettes a day, I would suggest you start grouping before you start quitting. Join a group because it's more protective of your health and your and your well-being than giving up the cigarettes. Intriguing thought, you know, that that, that should be so <laughs> beneficial.
1: That's so interesting at a very practical level um, to kind of take it down to something very sort of straightforward. I remember when I read um, about shared moments of joy and when you first just I read it first when you were uh, writing a proof of your book one of the things that we started doing in our company is doing a look forward to list so we now publish in amazing effort a look forward to list every three months because it's essentially we're finding it's both anticipating moments of joy and having the moments of joy that is working wonders for our oh, team because we're a fully remote team so we don't we get we kind of we get together for you know very purposeful tasks and you know things that we need to achieve but one of the things that we recognized is shared moments of joy for us as an organization are not going to happen just naturally through some drinks after work or um you know in the kind of that old school office that I definitely grew up in you know people have got different lifestyles different places they live different commitments and so we we wanted to kind of create the chance for that sense of belonging but to happen in a sort of low-key way and that look forward to list is a really simple thing that we've done um we kind of we do it seasonally we sort of have an autumn one and a winter one and it's been it has really surprised me the positive reaction from the team we've not even done some of the activities yet they're just excited about those activities and it's sort of created a shared moment of joy even having the look forward to list um that was from reading your book bruce we did that amazing uh So an interesting one here, an anonymous one, Um, more about, I think, wanting to get your perspective on a challenge again at work around um, women hitting the glass ceiling, particularly when they have kids. So um, often I think it's, it's very well documented that You know, perhaps you 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 know you feel like you're doing well with your career. You're developing. You're making really good progress. You have kids, and it feels like that means you stall, or perhaps even you kind of backtrack, or have to make some compromises that have not been not been your choice. So you're not sort of squiggling with success, as we would talk about it. You're going, you're having to kind of make some compromises that that is not what you would choose. Um, And this person is also saying that they had hoped it might be different for. They're someone who they're related to, who is fifteen years younger, and they've experienced something very similar. Mm. So, being made redundant by a male boss who has made lots of women redundant and um, brought in lots of men from perhaps previous companies, and so I wondered whether, and you know, this person is sort of des- describing, I suspect something that wouldn't feel unfamiliar for lots of people. So if you follow uh, pregnant, then screwed on LinkedIn, and I'd encourage you to follow them on Instagram, there are lots of stories and examples that are very similar to that one that I've just read. And again, you can imagine those women being told, you know, you just need to be more resilient, you sort of you you just need to suck it up or kind of live with it. And have you found any differences in terms of gender around resilience and fortitude and and expectations in terms of what we expect from people. Um, and is and is there anything else more broadly actually zooming out in the work that you do about making work better? Um, and that's the name of Bruce's brilliant newsletter, by the way, everybody, Make Work Better. Um, anything else that you have spotted that you think is just interesting to observe or comment on in response to that?
2: Yeah, I'll start with the second lens first, really, because I think you know the critical thing here mm. is on that newsletter about a year and a half ago, we... Um, I was given some data someone contacted me in Australia which uh, with some data that was about the return to office so Australia had a very weird pandemic where initially they they felt like they were they were teasing us by their concerts and their sporting events carrying on unabashed. And then they ended the pandemic with with various cities that had the longest lockdowns in the world. So, you know, th- their, in, their pandemic was slightly inverted from ours. And in the midst of it, they had a return to the office. And this person contacted me with a series of data of which companies were going. Um, we, we worked together on what the return to work policy was of these organizations. And then the the data was the gender balance in those organizations. And we we created an index of that that was partly um, in Australia. Any organization, I think over 50 people, needs to publish how many women they've got at every level of the organization. So it's this incredibly rich and textured um, take on exactly what their organization looks like. Anyway, we correlated them together. And with the exception of one organization, we, we looked at two industries. With the exception of one organization, it was a straight line correlation. If you were returning to the office, you were far more likely to be a male dominated firm. And it was astonishing, actually. The more women you had in the organization, the more likely you were to have something that's progressive. It's a gendered issue. Even though it doesn't feel like the return Mm -hmm. to the office is a a gendered issue, it is a gendered issue. The one outlier was an organization that, albeit that didn't have the best gender balance, it had a female CEO. It's like, okay, I mean, if I I wanted something that proved the point. And uh, it was a really fascinating piece of data. Like, it was it was eye popping because you just thought, I cannot believe that, you know, the outcome that when we've run all of these, we've correlated it and we've got this astonishing straight line. And I think this is one of the things it's gonna spring up. And we've kind of, because that knowledge is kind of there, we've banked it a little bit and we've forgotten it. So one of the things there was an article in the New York Times today um, that I posted on LinkedIn and Twitter earlier that was, you know, an illustration of this. So the chief exec of one big famous American organization had looked at the Zoom logs of people on Fridays. And he decided that people weren't doing any work on Fridays because the Zoom logs were significantly lower. And so he's using it as a reason to demand people come back to the office. Not sure whether he's just going to demand they come back to the office on Fridays or just going to demand people come back to the office. But all of this is is secretly a gendered thing because the people who find it easier to come back to the office are people who don't have drop off responsibilities, who don't have pick up responsibilities who don't have maybe care responsibilities on the periphery, who aren't dealing with this same volume of domestic work. And uh, and it's a gendered thing, you know, it's really viv- and it's a quietly gendered thing. We've seen, a, a, you know, in the US, a million women left the workforce during the pandemic. And well, while we don't have those, that depth of data here, it's, it's a genuine issue. So I think, you know, this is far more a gendered issue. And in fact, you know, that question, two questions ago about my boss won't believe in this. I guarantee that's a guy. I guarantee that, you know, there's certain people who the way that we're working has suited and the, the historical way that we've got to here is suited. And they are trying to drop us with the university of common sense argument for why we need to go back to the way it was. You know, the way we're working wasn't working for a lot of people. And it's it's gaslighting, a think, to try and pretend that actually we were, were making a mistake in doing something more progressive, I think.
1: And so, perhaps, maybe, maybe it challenges um, what we've just talked about, but 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 not necessarily. Somebody asking about connection at work, um, and I know you'll have a, a good point of view on this. So, this person is asking um, anonymously. People change jobs a lot more frequently compared to twenty years ago. Um, that's only true. Like I know that from the work that we do. So, people maybe stay in one job or maybe even one organisation for certainly one career for a, a shorter period of time than they did previously. Do, do you think that then means that people feel less connected at work? You know, there was a lot of talk, actually, this was pre-pandemic about loneliness. You know, I remember we we did some work on loneliness um, at work and lots of people being in the office and feeling very lonely. So I think we've got to disconnect this idea of like, oh, well, you're less lonely if I'm sitting next to Bruce at a desk and we're both still tapping away or tapping on our laptops. Um, so what what are you seeing in terms of the work that you're doing in terms of this idea of, of connection? And d- does it link to this idea of like, we need to be in the office to be connected?
2: Look, I mean, there's no doubt a, a significant element of this. I think to some extent, we're moving from a relationship with work that is like our relationship with school to moving to something closer to our relationship with college. And what I mean by that is that a relationship at school was filled with constant connections with, you know, a group of people. It was tight-knit. These represented your best friends. You know, they, they were your best friends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are the people that you remember for the rest of your life. At college, the people on your course might have been your friends, but there was pretty good chance that your real closest friends weren't studying on your course with you. You're unlikely to find a romantic partner on your course. You you were unlikely to go out hanging out with them in the evenings. And I think we're moving to a closer relationship like that with work. It's gone from a school relationship to a college relationship. Now, that is not necessarily a bad thing. So work representing less of our identity, less uh, uh, taking up less headspace for us is not a bad thing. But I think we just need to be mindful to make sure that we fill that gap. So if you don't have people that you're giggling with all day, you know, giggling is kind of something that, got eliminated during the pandemic, but just like, you know, because you, you weren't around people all day, you weren't laughing in the same way. And I think as long as you feel, feel it, you know, and you make sure that you're not living a life now devoid of laughter, you've, you're trying to create those moments of fun and, and entertainment. I think there's no bad thing that work becomes less of our lives. But I think swapping out, having those connections with not having them is probably a bad thing.
1: And just moving away from work, um, perhaps for our final question for today, uh, somebody asking anonymously, do your ideas apply to family life as well as the workplace?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the teenage thing, I think is an illustration of that. Um, feeling connected the, to, the, to our family is, is really helpful for us. One of the things, it's really interesting, when you look at the, the research about um, recovery from things like heart illness or depression one of the things that's the best predictor of how well you'll recover whether you have a recurrence of it is how many groups you report feeling part of and in a lot of that research they they count family as a group um so you know it does play a big part they're often the people who understand us the best they're there for us the most so yeah these things can be having family can be really important it's It's worth also putting on the record that for some people, their family does not represent that. So it's not a given, but if your family does feel like an enveloping, supportive, welcoming place, then definitely it can be that.
1: And if you wanted to leave everybody um, watching or listening, with kind of a final few thoughts about Fortitude. Uh, what what are your final thoughts that you'd like to share with everybody?
2: Well, look, I wanna thank you firstly, Sarah, for, for the, the amount of time that you've committed to doing this. I'm so immensely grateful and I'm in awe of the work that that you and Helen do. So like, what an honor for you to do this with me. Um, look, you know, the I think the, the thing that I would say is that I found myself scratching my head, trying to work out why resilience was something that we evidently see it all around us. But whenever businesses try to synthesize it, it doesn't work. When classrooms try to create it, it doesn't work. So it exists in the wild, but it's it's kind of like panda babies. It, it's been hard to, to reproduce in <laughs> captivity. And I think I wanted to get to the bottom of that, really, try and understand that. And the answer is right in front of our very eyes. You know, when we see people like, you know, people in surviving conflict, people who overcome remarkable situations, they never go it alone. Someone said in my research, um, you know, it's you can't be resilient on your own, can you? And I think that's it. Resilience is the the strength we draw from other people. And if we taught that to kids at school, if we taught that to colleagues who used to sit lungs side by side with each other, then it would make us feel less helpless and alone when we do feel like we're not at our best. So, you know, The strength that we draw from other people is probably a really potent lesson for all of us.
1: And a really lovely way to finish our conversation together. So thank you to Bruce. Thank you to all of you, to our audience. I know some people will be watching, listening live. Some people might be watching on catch up. And of course, to Intelligence Squared for hosting us today. Thank you again.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.